You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Good sleep. It's so important, yet so elusive. How can we safely help our patients get adequate sleep? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Nancy Foldvery, Director and Section Head of the Sleep Disorder Center at the Neuroscience Institute of the Cleveland Clinic. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Fulveri. Thank you. So many patients come in complaining about being tired and not sleeping well. How truly prevalent is this type of problem? Well, sleep disorders in general are very common. Insomnia is the most common of the sleep disorders. And probably around 30% of adult Americans have insomnia at some point in their life, if not more. And maybe as many as 20% or 25% have chronic insomnia. And I imagine that for most of us, an occasional problem with sleep is normal. When do we define this as a, a true medical problem? What is the definition of insomnia medically? Well, insomnia has been defined differently by different types of specialties. But the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and based on international classification of sleep disorders has recently redefined, sort of expanded the definition of insomnia to include difficulty initiating or maintaining sleep, as well as unrefreshing or non-restorative sleep, despite adequate opportunity. In other words, it's not, it excludes people who volitionally get themselves sleep-deprived and shift workers. So uh, in the past, we would typically think of insomnia as difficulty falling asleep uh, and then difficulty maintaining sleep or staying asleep, but now we also consider people to have insomnia when they report no difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, yet they have unrestored or unrefreshing sleep. And when you mention that patients report this, do you find that uh, typically their assessments are reliable? I only got two hours of sleep, or I've had this problem or that problem with sleep? Well, I think in part their assessments are reliable. Typically, we ask more objective questions in the sleep interview and sometimes use objective testing to confirm or refute what they're reporting. There is such a thing called sleep state misperception, and I think this affects a subset of people with sleep disorders where they're really, really way off in terms of their perception of sleep. And that happens occasionally in people with insomnia where they, where they have the feeling coming in that, you know, I haven't slept in six months. And when we really know that that's probably not humanly possible. Mm -hmm. And those types of patients may benefit from some objective measurement that basically confirms that they are sleeping at least enough to function on a regular basis. may not be the optimal amount of sleep that they need, but it's certainly enough to maintain basic body functions. So sometimes it's, it is important to get some more objective evidence of what a, a patient is reporting. Absolutely. Now, typically with insomnia, there are many patients with what we call primary insomnia can be diagnosed adequately with a thorough sleep history. More often, people who are coming in with other types of sleep complaints like excessive daytime sleepiness, snoring, unusual behavior during sleep really require objective testing with a polysomnogram in the sleep laboratory and sometimes a daytime test to measure wakefulness. But there is a small group of insomniacs who really have a secondary sleep disorder. So they may have a tendency for insomnia, but it may be their sleep apnea that coexists that wakes them up during the night. The sleep history generally can help to differentiate those types of patients and typically will refer people to the laboratory if there's any suspicion that something else is going on. That makes good sense. And certainly daytime consequences of disorders like sleep apnea or shift work have been well documented. Do lesser degrees or other types of insomnia also uh, 
carry with it uh, consequences during the day or burdens and costs? Absolutely. And I, I neglected to mention that in that definition of insomnia that I stated earlier, one of the a part, essential part of that definition is that there must at least be uh, some form of daytime consequence. So it's not just the complaint of difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, or non-restorative sleep, but that has to be accompanied by some sort of daytime impairment. And that most commonly is fatigue or daytime sleepiness, uh, but very often people will describe cognitive impairment, whether it be an attention concentration, memory functions, or, or some sort of interpersonal problem, moodiness, irritability, or a tendency to have difficulty functioning in the workplace. You mentioned primary versus secondary insomnia. Is that a good framework for us to approach insomnia with, or are there other classifications that you find useful? There are several different classification schemes that have been proposed over time. There is one that really just describes the acute a sort of subacute and chronic insomnia, uh, but the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the International Classification of Sleep Disorders currently now describes the insomnias that have no underlying cause as primary insomnias, and then it uses the term comorbid insomnia to really describe what we would consider secondary. This is the insomnia that's accompanied by psychosocial stressors or psychiatric disorders like depression or other medical disorders like heart failure and neurodegenerative disease where wakefulness at night is particularly common. Is the comorbid insomnia something we're more likely to see, I would imagine? or I think so. I think probably, particularly in a tertiary care sleep center, sort of like ours, maybe 10 to 15% of insomnias are what we would call primary insomnias. And there's a fair amount of insomnia that relates to psychosocial stressors and particularly psychiatric disorders. And I'm sure uh, even more of that is seen in primary care settings. That would, I think, fit with the patients that, that I'm seeing in my primary care practice. You are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Nancy Foldvery, who is the director and section head of the Sleep Disorder Center at the Neuroscience Institute and Women's Health Center at the Cleveland Clinic. We are discussing insomnia. Tell us more about disorders we should be thinking about picking up in our patients that have comorbid insomnia with them. Well, I think the most common are mood disorders and anxiety disorders. In fact, one of my colleagues here is investigating the prevalence of comorbid insomnia and uh, psychiatric disorders, and they've found significantly higher number of people that have both than that's been previously published. I think most patients with depression and anxiety at some point present with some sort of sleep difficulty at night. So that's probably the most common. Uh, there's also another category, which is the comorbid insomnias that, that are prevalent in people who use drugs and substances, caffeine, that sort of thing. Many of them don't really come directly to the sleep disorder center, but they probably do have some impairment of daytime functioning based on the combination of sleep loss as well as substance abuse. And I imagine with sleep hygiene, we always mention to our patients to be careful about caffeine and alcohol. Is there a, a rule of thumb uh, how many hours before a or is it more an individual patient type of guideline that should be given? I think it's somewhat individualized, but for the insomniac, particularly the person who often comes to a sleep center, by the time they present to a sleep center, they've typically tried herbal remedies, they've read some books, they've spoken with their primary care physician, and they're really desperate for some sleep. Those folks often really need to adhere to very strict sleep hygiene, and so we'll recommend that they consume no caffeinated beverages or anything containing caffeine after uh, perhaps as early as noon, sometimes to omit it altogether. 
and that they uh, avoid alcohol altogether, or at least if they're going to drink, drink uh, three to four hours before their anticipated bedtime. Are there uh, other medical disorders that uh, one might not think of in the primary care arena that can sometimes cause problems with sleep? Oh, there are many. In fact, some of the more common ones are very common medical conditions. For example, heart failure. Patients with heart failure, patients with asthma and other types of COPD uh, have a lot of difficulty, particularly lying supine at night, uh, and commonly have either some form of sleep apnea or a combination of apnea with insomnia that can make apnea very challenging to treat. Patients with pain disorders, fibromyalgia, even reflux at night uh, are common conditions that will fragment sleep. And uh, other painful disorders, you mentioned fibromyalgia, but uh, cancer pain or orthopedic pain? Absolutely. I think uh, virtually any pain syndrome uh, has the propensity to fragment sleep. And then the physiology of of deep sleep is is such that slow-wave sleep or stage uh, 3-4 in non-REM, these are very restorative stages. And so if, if people are waking up out of light sleep and never quite getting into deep sleep, this affects their functioning during the day and, in fact, can change their pain threshold and make pain disorders even worse. Very interesting. And, and I noticed also in the, uh, your fairly recent article in the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, you list a number of medications that, can, uh, that we use for medical disorders that can inter- cause an interference with sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of these are also, interestingly, medications that physicians will use to treat sleep disorders, really not realizing that we, while it may be effective for one condition, it may exacerbate another. Like uh, many physicians will use tricyclic antidepressants to help people sleep, and in fact, those can cause other problems, including restless leg syndrome. And so, um, and many of the Bronchodilators that are used for asthma can also be stimulating, as well as uh, drugs like theophylline uh, and cortisol. And I see beta blockers on the list. Uh, I wouldn't think of that as something that would interfere with sleep. Beta blockers uh, have pretty consistently in literature been shown to cause uh, insomnia in some people, as well as nightmares. And so some people will report more vivid, intense dreams with negative content when they're using beta blockers. I imagine when you're uh, evaluating patients who are on some of these medications, you look for suitable alternatives when that is an option? Absolutely. It's like recognizing any other comorbid condition. If there's something that can be addressed that would treat the problem, then we tend to use that form of therapy first before introducing an additional medication or some other form of therapy for insomnia. And are there specific things that we should be doing when we're taking a history from a patient with insomnia that might uh, we might not think about when we're taking history for other disorders? Well, I think that patients with sleep disorders in general really need a full sleep history, which is a detailed discussion of not only what time they go to bed and wake up, but what happens in bed at night and how they feel during the day and uh, whether their functioning is impaired at the workplace or behind the wheel. For insomniacs, it's important to talk about their sleep environment because many people with insomnia have developed very bad habits. They may not even be sleeping in a bedroom. They may be sleeping on the couch or they may be laying in bed, ruminating for hours and hours or working on their laptop, eating in bed, watching TV in bed. So it's important for insomniacs to really get a visual of what they do in their bed at night, how they use their bedroom, and what their perceptions are about um, their sleep quality. So really focus on the details of the sleep, what's going on in the bedroom, and also uh, the consequences uh, and stresses uh, because of that during the day. Right. And so for someone with insomnia, it's, it's certainly in addition to that, 
uh, a sleep physician should be asking about you know medical disorders, medications, and and take a good social history as well, like uh, like any other physician encounter would. Mm-hmm. And is it ever uh, do you ever or is it helpful to bring in a bed partner? It is helpful to bring in a bed partner. Many times insomniacs are quite capable of providing a very detailed sleep history. They're they're often the best observers uh, of all. But often when it comes to what they may be sleeping like or, you know, whether they have leg jerks at night or could they possibly have a different sleep disorder on top of the insomnia like sleep apnea, then it becomes more important to get the uh, bed partner story as well. I want to thank Dr. Nancy Fulberry, who has been with us from the Cleveland Clinic today as we've been discussing the approach to insomnia. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.